Chapter Ten of the Confessions of a Poacher, edited by John Watson, Fellow of the Linnean Society. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Tricks. When it is known that a man's life is one long protest against the game laws, he has to be exceedingly careful of his comings and goings. Every constable, every gamekeeper, and most workers in woodcraft are aware of the motives which bring him abroad at night. More eyes are upon him than he sees, and no one knows better than he that the enemies most to be feared are those who are least seen, and the man who has tasted the bitterness of poaching penalties will do everything in his power to escape detection. Probably the greatest aid to this end is knowing the country by heart, the field paths and disused byways, the fordable parts of the river, and a hundred things beside. The poacher is, and must be, suspicious of every one he meets. In planning and carrying out forays, I was always careful to observe two conditions. No poaching secret was ever confided to another, and I invariably endeavoured to get to the ground unseen. If my outgoing was observed, it often entailed a circuit of a dozen miles in coming home, and even then the entry into town was not without considerable risk. The hand of everyone was against me in my unlawful calling, and many were the shifts I had to make to escape detection or capture. To show with what success this may be carried out, the following incident will show. I conceived the idea of openly shooting certain well-stocked coverts during the temporary absence of the owner. These were so well watched that all the ordinary measures at night seemed likely to be baffled. To openly shoot during broad day, and under the very eye of the keeper, was now the essential part of the programme, and to this end I must explain as follows. The keeper on the estate was, but lately, come to the district, Upon two occasions when I had been placed in the dock, I had been described as a poacher of gentlemanly appearance and the gentleman poacher again. My forefathers had been small estatesmen for generations, and I suppose that some last lingering air of gentility attached to me. Well, I had arranged with a confederate to act as bag-carrier. He was to be very servile, and not to forget to touch his cap at pretty frequent intervals. After making up, as a country squire, I had closely studied the species on the bench, and providing a luncheon in keeping with my temporary squiredom, we started for the woods. It was a bright morning in the last week of October, and game, hares, pheasants, and woodcock 
was exceedingly plentiful. The first firing brought up the keeper, who touched his hat in the most respectful fashion. He behaved, in short, precisely as I would have had him behave. I lost no time on quietly congratulating him on the number and quality of his birds, told him that his master would return from town tomorrow, which I had learned incidentally, and ended by handing him my cartridge bag to carry. A splendid bag of birds had been made by luncheon time, and the viands which constituted the meal were very much in keeping with my assumed position. Dusk came at the close of the very short October afternoon, and with it the end of our day's sport. The bag was spread out in one of the rides of the wood, and in imagination I can see it now. Thirty-seven pheasants, nine hares, five woodcock, a few rabbits, some cushets, and the usual miscellaneous. The man of gaiters was dispatched a couple of miles for a cart to carry the spoil, and a substantial tip gave speed to his not unwilling legs. The game, however, was not to occupy the cart. A donkey with panniers was waiting in a clump of brush by the covert side, and as soon as the panniers were packed, its head was turned homeward over a wild bit of moorland. With the start obtained, chase would have been fruitless had it ever been contemplated, which it never was. I need not detail the sequel to the incident here and may say that it was somewhat painful to myself as well as my bag-carrier, and I am sorry to say that the keeper was summarily dismissed by the enraged squire as a reward for his innocence. As to the coverts, they were so well stocked that after a few days' rest there appeared as much game as ever, and the contents of our little bag were hardly missed. Another trick to which my co-worker used to resort was to attire himself in broad-brimmed hat and black coat similar to those worn a century ago by the people called Quakers. In the former he carried his nets, and in the capacious pockets of the latter the game he took. These outward guarantees of good faith, away from his own parish, precluded him from ever once being searched. I have already remarked, and every practical poacher knows it to be the fact, that the difficulty is not so much to obtain game as to transport it safely home. Although our dogs were trained to run on a hundred yards in advance, so as to give warning of the approach of a possible enemy, even this did not always save us. A big bag of game handicaps one severely in a cross-country run, and it is doubly galling to have to sacrifice it. Well, upon the particular occasion to which I refer, there was to be a country funeral with a hearse from the neighbouring market town, 
and of this I was determined to take advantage. By arranging with the driver, I was enabled to stow myself and a large haul in the body of the vehicle, and although the journey was a cramped and stuffy one, we in time reached our destination. As we came behind the nearest game shop, the driver undid the door, and the questionable corpse was safely landed. I need hardly say that in a long life of poaching there were many occasions when I was brought to book. These, however, would form but a small percentage of the times I was out. My success in this way was probably owing to the fact that I was chary as to those I took into confidence, and knew that above all things, keeping my own counsel was the best wisdom. Another melcher I knew, but with whom I would have nothing to do, was an instance of one who told poaching secrets to village gossips. The mole spent most of his time in the county jail, and just lately he completed his 65th incarceration, only a few of which were for offences outside the game laws. Well, there came a time when all the keepers round the countryside had their revenge on me, and they made the most of it. I and my companion were fairly caught by being driven into an ambuscade by a combination of keepers. Exultant in my capture, the keepers from almost every estate in the neighbourhood flocked to witness my conviction. Some of them, who had at times only seen a vanishing form in the darkness, now attended to see the man, as they put it. As I had always been followed at nights by an old black bitch, she, too, was produced in court, and proved an object of much curiosity. Well, our case was called, and, as we had no good defence to set up, it was agreed that my companion should do the talking. Without letting it appear so, we had a very definite object in prolonging the hearing of the case. There was never any great inclination to hurry such matters, as the magistrates always seemed to enjoy them. We had been taken in the act, my co-worker told the bench. We deserved no quarter, and asked none. Poaching was right by the Bible, but wrong by the law and so he was rushing on. One of the justices deigned to remark that it was a question of property, not morality. Oh, rejoined the otter, because blue blood doesn't run in my veins, that's no reason why I shouldn't have my share, but it's a queer kind of property that's yours in that field, mine on the turnpike, and a third man's over the next fence. The end of it was, however, a fine of five pounds, with an alternative. And so the case ended. But that day the keepers and their assistants had forgotten the first principles of watching. The best keeper is the one that is the least seen. 
only let the poacher know his whereabouts and the latter's work is easy it was afterwards remarked that during our trial not a poacher was in court to any keeper skilled in his craft this fact must have appeared unusual and significant it became even more so when both of us were released by reason of our heavy fine having been paid the same evening most of the keepers had had their day out and were making the most of it had their heads not been muddled they might have seen more than one woman labouring under loaded baskets near the local game dealers these innocently covered with mantling cresses and so at the time escaping suspicion upon the memorable day the pheasants had been fed by unseen hands and had vanished the only traces left by the covert side were fluffy feathers everywhere few hairs remained on the land the rest had either been snared or netted at the gates the rabbits burrows had been ferreted the ferrets having been slyly borrowed at the keeper's cottage during his absence for the occasion i may say that in connection with this incident we always claimed to poach square and drew the line at home-reared pheasants allowing them property those found wild in the woods were on a different footing and we directed our whole knowledge of woodcraft against them here is another court incident in which i and my companion played a part we came in contact with the law just sufficient to make us know something of its bearings when charged with being in possession of game we reiterated the old argument that rabbits were vermin but it rarely stood us in good stead on one occasion however we scored being committed for two months for night poaching we respectfully informed the presiding justice that at the time of our capture the sun had risen an hour and further that the law did not allow more than half the sentence just passed upon us our magistrate friend to whom i have more than once referred was on the bench and he told his brother justices that he thought there was something in the contention the old clerk looked crabbed as he fumbled for his horn spectacles and after turning over a book called stone's justices manual he solemnly informed the bench that defendants in their interpretation were right we naturally remember this little incident and as the law has had the whip hand of us upon so many occasions chuckle over it we invariably made friends with the stone breakers by the roadsides and just as invariably carried about us stone-breakers hammers and preserves for the eyes when hard pressed and if unknown to the pursuing keeper nothing is easier than to dismiss the dog throw off one's coat plump down upon the first stone heap on the road 
and go to work. If the thing is neatly done, and the preserves cover the face, it is wonderful how often this ruse is successful. The keeper may put a hasty question, but he oftener rushes after his man. Mention of stone heaps reminds me of the fact that they are better hides for nets than almost anything else, especially the larger unbroken heaps. We invariably hid our big cumbrous fishing nets beneath them, and the stones were just as invariably true to their trust. Going back to my earliest poaching days, I remember a cruel incident which had a very different ending to what its author intended. A young keeper had made a wager that he would effect my capture within a certain number of days, and my first intimation of this fact was a sickening sight which I discovered in passing down a woodland glade just at dawn on a bright December morning. I heard a groan, and a few yards in front saw a man stretched across the ride. His clothes were covered with hoar-frost, he was drenched in blood, and the poor fellow's pale face showed me that of the keeper. He was held fast in a man-trap, which had terribly lacerated his lower limbs. He was conscious, but quite exhausted. Although in great agony, he suffered me to carry him to a neighbouring hayrick, from whence we removed him to his cottage. He recovered slowly, and the man-trap which he had set the night before was, I believe, the last ever used in the district. End of chapter 10